The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. I know life is not always like the storybook that we saw in the video just now. But moms, you do so much, so thank you. I want to welcome you here this morning to Westway. Uh, my name's Cody. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be here this morning. Um, we're continuing on, continuing on in our series that we're calling Intergenerational, and essentially what we're doing is, is looking at why we at Westway think it's important to have an intergenerational church. And if you were here last week, um, Zane came up and he kind of introduced that whole topic to us of what does an inter- intergenerational church look like? And... Uh, He mentioned the difference between multi-generational and intergenerational and why we believe at Westway we want to be more of an intergenerational church. Because when you you say the word multi-generational, what I think of when I hear that word is that there are lots of different generations represented. And that's where it ends. As Zane described for us last week, um, multi-generational churches have mul- a multi- multiple different generations represented, but they don't really interact with each other in any way. They just kind of stay in their own little bubbles and do their own thing. And that's not the kind of church that we want to be. We want to have a representation from multitudes of different generations, but we also want those generations to be together, united. And so that's the main difference. With an intergenerational church, we see different age groups not only represented, but serving together, singing together, praising together, discussing the Bible together, and hopefully growing together. Today, we're going to be talking about why intergenerational gatherings are important. And so uh, we're going to kind of look at two different things, but I want to talk a little bit more about that word intergenerational. If you've been at Westway for a while, you've probably heard us use the phrase um, talking about our mission, vision, values, and preferred culture. If you've seen it on the screen, usually it's just represented by those letters, MVVPC. And that's essentially who we are as a church, who we want to be as a church, and the things that are important to us. So you've heard our mission that you saw in the video this morning. Our mission is to proclaim Jesus. Our vision is to be united together through the Holy Spirit in unity, purpose, and love so that all of Scottsbluff County knows him. And then we have a list of things that, that we value at Westway. And being an intergenerational church is one of those values. Like I said, we don't want to be a church where there's no interaction between people in different stages of life, and we believe that every single person has value, and that God created everyone on purpose and for a purpose. So we encourage everyone to use the gifts that God has given you to enhance the body here. I'm 35 years old, I think that's right. Okay. I always have to ask my wife. I'm 35 years old, and I have seen the value of being intergenerational. One of my favorite things about when I was growing up, we would often go and visit my grandparents in eastern Nebraska on the farm. And one of my favorite things to do was to sit 
um, around his big table. And oftentimes when my dad's side got together, there would be cards involved. And it was always fun for me to, at first, like sit on my dad's lap and just kind of learn the game and um, hear all of the different conversations that were going on around me. And I remember like just loving to listen and hear the stories about maybe what it was look like, what it did look like for my dad to grow up on the farm being the youngest of nine and hearing stories about farm life. Maybe occasionally hearing my grandpa tell a story about um, his time in the Navy. Like those were cool stories for me to hear. And I, I don't know that like when I was in that moment growing up that I knew the importance of that. Learning, hearing, wisdom from previous generations. I also have two kids. They're six and nine. And like I learned from them too. <laughs> we value being intergenerational because everyone matters. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I think when, when I think of that word intergenerational, what that means to me is everyone together as much as possible. And to me, intergenerational boils down to one word. That's discipleship. And Zane talked about this last week too, that we have a responsibility as parents to disciple our children. So for me, I have a responsibility to train my kids up in the way they should go. But not only that, the church has a responsibility too. Zane mentioned that the primary way discipleship is meant to happen is through the family unit. And I say the word primary because I don't want to confuse you and for you to only hear the only way for discipleship to happen is in the family unit because that's not true. The primary way that that happens is within our families where parents and grandparents are discipling their children and their grandchildren. And last week, if you were here, we got to see a wonderful example of that when parents stood up here and read a blessing over their graduating seniors. And it was cool to sit back there and to hear parents read these things over their children. You heard like a legacy poured out into their children, what they were thankful for, how they've seen them grow. Like this is the discipleship process. Not only do families have that responsibility, though, to disciple the next generation, but we, collectively, as the church, also have the responsibility. We're going to talk more about this later today, but I believe if you are here today and you call yourself a Christian, and if you're someone that calls Westway home, then you have a responsibility 
to disciple the next generation, to make disciples. So today, like I said, we're talking about why intergenerational gatherings are important to us at Westway. And I kind of want to break that down into two things, to look at what a gathering is and why that's important and what we try to do, and then to talk about why it's important that we're intergenerational. So first, what does it mean to gather together? Matthew 18, 20 says this, for where two or three are gathered as my followers, I am there among them. Like this is the, the big picture that I think of when, when we use that word gather. Jesus said, if there's two or three people that are gathered together in my name for my purpose, then I am there with them. So the technical definition, I guess, for what I would call a gathering is any time a group of at least two Christians are together proclaiming Jesus. At Westway, we kind of see this gathering played out in two different kinds of ways. The first one is what we're doing this morning. I like to call that gathering big. So when we gather together weekly for the 1015, um, we're gathering big. When we gather together for special events like our summer kickoff, our fall kickoff, our Thanksgiving meal, the food pack, like list all of those different things where we invite everyone in the body to come together, that's gathering big. There's lots of different people there, all working together for the same goal. Then we have what, what I like to call our gathering small. You see the creativity in what I'm talking about. Gathering small is just that. We gather together in small groups for Bible study. We gather together, um, maybe you've had someone from the body over for a meal to your house. I would consider that gathering small. Um, right now, we have students, elementary school um, and younger children, off in the children's wing, and they're in small groups, learning about Jesus and discussing that together. All of those things are gathering small. And we see both types of these gatherings here at Westway, and that's intentional on our part. Because I believe when you look at Scripture, too, there are tons of examples in the New Testament of followers of Jesus gathering both big and small. And if you're on the U version and you have that on your phones, I want to encourage you to pull that up right now. And I don't have time to dig into every single one of these scriptures, but I made a list of all of the scriptures that I could find um, throughout the gospels that reference large crowds gathering to listen to Jesus. So I encourage you at some point this week to go through those one by one and just read about all the times that large crowds of, of people came to gather around Jesus. And what you would see when, when these large crowds would gather around Jesus is that Jesus did a, a few things. He used that time to teach. So there's an example of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew where Jesus had a large crowd come before him and he used that as an opportunity to teach to teach the, them about um, the kingdom that was coming, to talk about all of the, the different things um, from the law. Jesus used that as an opportunity to teach the groups that were gathered around him. He also used that as an opportunity to minister to the physical needs of the people. So you see examples of Jesus healing. Some of my favorite stories are when Jesus would perform miracles to the large groups where he gathered the, the loaves and fish from the little boy and used that to feed the multitudes of people that were around him. So Jesus would teach and then he would minister to the people 
whether it was through healing, casting out demons, or feeding them. Those were all kind of physical needs that Jesus took care of in those opportunities. That was, those are some good examples of gathering big that we see in the New Testament. Jesus also gathered small. You know that he had 12 disciples that were closest to him. And he called them to come and follow him. And so all throughout Jesus' ministry, they were there. They were there with the large groups experiencing Jesus teach to the masses. They saw Jesus heal. They saw Jesus perform miracles. They saw him calm the storm. They witnessed all of those things. They were there with Jesus on the ground, helping him in his ministry. And when I think of of Jesus gathering small with his disciples, not only were they a part of everything that was going on when they were gathered in those large groups, but Jesus would also kind of take them off on their own and maybe try and explain something in a little more detail that they didn't understand. They got to see kind of the behind the scenes what Jesus did when he would go off alone to pray. And they experienced all of those things too. Jesus showed the disciples by example what he wanted them to do, how he wanted them to live, and he equipped them and empowered them to do the same. Eventually, Jesus did what he said he was going to do, and he died and he rose again and he ascended into heaven. And then he commissioned the disciples to go out and make disciples, just like he had showed them how to do, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That was how Jesus gathered small. And I believe that gathering is important for us as believers. I was thinking about this question this week. And I don't need you to answer out loud, but I want you to think about this as I continue on. Is it possible, I had a professor in in college that if we asked that question, he wouldn't even listen to the rest of it and he would just spat out yes. It's possible. Is it possible to be a Christian without gathering with other believers? Like we use, we throw around words here at Westway like essential, conviction, preference. I was kind of wrestling with this myself this last week. Is it possible to be a Christian without gathering with other believers? I would say yes. Gathering together is not, like when I think of the word essential, it's not essential to my salvation. But here's the caveat. I think you can be a Christian without gathering together with other believers, but I also think that you're missing out. You're missing out on something that God has in store for you because there's value in gathering together. It's important. I was reading through uh, the YouVersion event, well, the YouVersion Bible reading plan this morning um, that, that we started up, and I wanted to share a quote from that with you. The author says, you and I are better together. God has created other people for you to lead and other people to become your helpmate. Just take a few seconds to think about all the people that you have influenced in your life already or that have influenced your life already. God created them to help you, to encourage you, and to inspire you. 
Take a few seconds and think about all the people that you have come alongside. You are living out God's will for your life and are influencing those around you. You see, God created us as relational beings. God wants us to be in relationship with him and also with each other as the body of Christ. He created us as relational beings. And I know that the times in my life when I have have learned and grown the most have usually been not on my own, but when I was in a group of people that can push me, that can encourage me, and that can kind of show me things from a different perspective that I may not have thought of before. On my own, I tend to become complacent and kind of plateau in my faith. And that's when I need the church, the gathering of people, to boost me up a little bit and put me back on the right direction. We have a few statements listed in our mission, vision, values, and preferred culture about gathering, and I wanted to talk through those. Those are in the U version event, if you're following along. The first thing that we try to do when we get together is proclaim Jesus as Lord. Like I said, that's our mission. That's what's written out on the wall in the lobby. Our mission is to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And so when we gather together, we try to do that in a few different ways. We proclaim Jesus as Lord through our devotion to teaching, the word, fellowship with each other, the breaking of bread, which we celebrate every week together in communion, and we're going to do that in a little bit today as well, and through prayer. And we, we pull that from that passage in Acts 2 and also Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So Acts 2, 42 through 47, and Philippians 2, 1 through 4. When we gather together, we proclaim Jesus as Lord through our spurring one another on to love and good deeds, and that's from Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, where it says, don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but instead spur one another on to love and good deeds. And then we also proclaim Jesus as Lord through the way that we equip one another to do good works and build up the body of Christ from Ephesians 4. We do a lot of different things when we gather together. You'll hear someone stand up and preach the word. We'll sing some songs. We'll spend time in prayer. We give together. The way that the website says this is we, uh, we do this through Lord's Suppering together, taking communion together, and fellowshipping together. And all of those things we see evidenced throughout Scripture. And they're important to us at Westway because they were important enough to include them in these words as well. One of the cool things about all of those different elements, in my opinion, is that all of those different elements do one thing, and that's unite us together as the body. When we're all participating together, we all come together, singing the same songs, taking communion together. That's why I know at a lot of other churches, sometimes they'll pass the plates and people will take communion when the plate passes by them. But I love how we decided to do that at Westway because we pause and take the communion elements at the same time together, uniting us together. In utilizing all of those things that I just talked about, preaching, singing, praying, giving, Lord's suppering, and fellowshipping, our hope as a leadership at Westway is that we're doing a few things. And we have this phrased in a question kind of as a check for us 
Like, are we doing this? But I want to encourage you all, too, to personalize these questions that I'm going to say. Like, as we gather together as the body, are you doing these things? As we're kind of planning these services, one of the things that that I know is in my mind is this little mental checklist of, like, are the things that we're doing giving us an opportunity as the body to teach God's word devotedly? Are we teaching God's word devotedly, faithfully, and engagingly? Are we encouraging relationships? Are we encouraging or spurring one another on to love and good deeds? Are we equipping one another to do good works and build up the body? Like, are we doing these things? When we come together and gather together, I think all of those things are important. It's important for us to come together as the body of Christ. But why specifically intergenerational gatherings? I believe that it's important because we believe that everyone matters to God and that all Christians are called to make disciples. So that means if you're sitting here in this room or even if you're watching online, that you matter and you have a place here. I believe that God has created everyone, like I said before, on purpose and for a purpose. That means we're all included in the plan that God has for us, and we all get to be a part of enacting that plan. We just talked about all the things we we try and do when we gather together. So my question for you is, how do you fit into that plan? What role do you see yourself playing? You see, intergenerational gatherings are gatherings that are they're intentionally focused on discipleship. And I want to look at a few examples today of what that process, that discipleship process looks like throughout the life of Timothy. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, we're going to spend some time in 2 Timothy. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, I want to read before we get into that a passage from Acts chapter 16. This is about Paul and Silas. Oh, sorry, before then. This is Paul's second missionary journey. Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. As I was reading through that, this is kind of the the introduction that we have of Timothy. And I want you to pay attention to what the way that Timothy was described in those verses. It says, Timothy was well thought of by the believers. You see, as Paul was going around and traveling from town to town, interacting with people and starting these churches, he met this young Timothy, and Paul noticed that same thing, that he was well thought of among his believers. Paul saw the potential in him and brought Timothy alongside him, much like Jesus did when he called the 12 disciples. He brought Timothy alongside him to help Timothy realize the potential 
that he had, and he used it to spread the gospel. And if you read through Acts, you'll see that Timothy was with Paul as he traveled around from town to town, as he preached the gospel and started churches. So Timothy, much like the disciples had that firsthand experience of Jesus, Timothy was able to follow Paul and see firsthand everything that he did. He witnessed Paul's successes and his failures. He saw people accept Christ because of the words that Paul was preaching to them. And he saw people get angry at the message that Paul was preaching and run him out of town. Eventually, Paul trusted Timothy to take all of those things that he heard, to take all of those things that he learned, and to go out and do the same thing. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is Paul writing to Timothy. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I've been sent out to tell others about the life that he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. I'm writing to Timothy, my dear son. May God, the Father, and Christ our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. Now chapter 2. Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. You have heard me teach these you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now, teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Like what I what I hear Paul saying in this passage is kind of that discipleship process. It's a, a two-step process. First, Paul equipped Timothy. He brought him alongside him, kind of showed him the ropes, brought him along on his journeys, and showed him what it looked like to preach, to teach, and to make disciples. And second, Paul empowered Timothy to do those same things. He said, you've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now, teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Like, Do you see the process here? It started with Paul, and then it went through Timothy, and then Timothy was being empowered and encouraged by Paul to do the same thing, to teach that to other people so that they can teach it to other people. And that process goes on and on and on. This is the discipleship process that I'm, that I'm talking about. It started in Timothy from a young age, and Paul took that and moved it forward. Look with me at 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and impostors will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they've given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. 
It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. And God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. I love how how Paul talked to Timothy in those verses. He says, you know, you see that phrase come up over and over. You know what I teach. You know how I live. You know what my purpose in life is. You've seen all of those things. Not only have you seen those things, but you also know about the persecution and the suffering that I went through. And then he goes on and says, you also know that God rescued me from those things. So because of all of those things that you know, because of all, those, all of those things that you have seen, he transitions from those things and says, be faithful, remain faithful to what you have been taught. That you can trust it because you trust the people that you heard it from. You trust the, the godly people that spoke truth into your life and taught you the scriptures. Remain faithful to what you have been taught. Do you guys see the process here? So what's our response? When I think about what it looks like to be an intergenerational gathering, this is the picture that comes into my mind. And I think Zane did a great job last, last week of introducing that topic to us because I think our response is to disciple others. Like I said before, if you call yourself a Christian, you are called to make disciples. And that happens in two ways. First, it starts in the family. With Timothy, I didn't read this, but I want to share this with you right now. Second Timothy 1, 3 through 7. Timothy, I thank God for you, the God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. Here's the part that I want you to pay attention to. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. You see, we talk about family discipleship, and Timothy's discipleship didn't start with Paul. That's probably the first picture that pops into our head when we hear the story of Timothy is that, oh, he, he traveled with Paul. He learned from Paul. Paul was the main influence on his life. That may be true, but it didn't start with Paul. It started when he was young in his family. That his grandma passed down to his mom and his mom passed down to him. I think of those verses in Deuteronomy that we talk about here often in Deuteronomy 6. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again. To what? To your children. Talk about them when you're at home 
and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's pretty all-encompassing. Pass on the faith that you have to your children. Talk about it all the time. When you wake up, when you go to bed, when you're at home, when you're on the road. And if you're stubborn and bullheaded like me, tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write it on your doorpost so you see it, so you live it. I'm going to transition into youth pastor mode here for a second. I was in student ministry for a little over 10 years. And during that time, you see, like, the research that's out there. Barna, over the years, has done a lot of research on um, young, young adults in the church. And uh, one of the things that we've seen, and this has been consistent since I've been following this research, is that there's a pattern of young adults that leave the church after they graduate. Some of them, it's just for a few years and then they come back. But for what we're seeing is that that has been consistent, that some leave for a little bit, some leave for a longer period of time. And I, I just wanted to read some stats. And this isn't, isn't to scare us, but it's to see our reality. 20% of young adults say that God is absent from their church experience. 25% of young adults say that their faith, or faith in general, is irrelevant. 33% of young adults say that church is boring. And 40 to 50% of young Christians fail to stick with their faith and connect with the church after high school. Now, like I said, that's not to scare us, but just to show us the reality of what is. And I think that, like, when I read those statistics, I ask myself some questions, and I hope that you guys are asking yourselves those same questions. What can I do? What can I do so that the child who sat in front of me during worship this morning has the odds stacked in their favor. For being able to stick it out with Jesus through their entirety of their life. What can I do so that the youth sitting across from me in the sanctuary will not just become another number of someone who went to church and stopped when they entered the real world? You see, I believe that we have an opportunity and that one of the best ways to help students develop a lifelong faith is simple. Although it's not so simple. To live life with them. To model it for them. 
So in a church setting, we worship together. We show them what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus that's vibrant and alive and real. If we show them these things, they'll notice. We show them what it looks like to corporately gather together as God's people and to sing together and to pray together and to read scripture together and to be generous and kind. So I have some what ifs for you. What would happen if you simply introduced yourself to a teenager that sits across on the other side of the auditorium this morning? What if you partnered alongside parents and started inviting families out for lunch who you've never gone out with before so that you could speak words of life into the parents and the children? What if you invited families over to your house and when they say, well, let me see if I can get childcare, you say, bring the kids. How would this community be different if children knew that we, as a church, were there for them? If they knew that we would pray for them? Many of you have probably been in this, in this place, shifting gears just a little bit. I call it the kids' table. How many of you had to sit at the kids' table when you were little? You see, when I think about the kids' table, like it's separate. It's off on its own. I've heard stories about some family gatherings where the kids even get different food that's not as good. How many of you have been at that kid's table? If you've been at the kid's table, I think that it's common for you to be hoping for that day when you get to what? Sit at the adult table. I hope that we're not viewing our, our kids in that way. I hope that we're not viewing our kids' ministry, our youth ministry, in that way, as the kids' table. Oh, they'll do their own thing, and then when they're old enough, They'll join us. I think that's part of the problem. And so we use this word discipleship 
And discipleship means that we're living life together, that we talk about what God has done in our lives with those who are younger with us, which also means the cool thing about that is if everyone in this room chose someone that was younger than than them to disciple, then by default, everyone in this room would probably have someone older than them discipling them. That's the goal. That is intergenerational. That means that in my life, I have a Paul, or maybe multiple Pauls, that are walking alongside me, teaching me, living life together, encouraging me. But it also means that I have a Timothy, or maybe multiple Timothys, that I am doing the same thing for. And I believe that our greatest strength in reaching the next generation and making sure that their faith sticks is by doing that. And it lies in the diversity of ages that are found in our church. A lot of times, I think we tend to look at people that are different than us and look at that as a bad thing. But in reality, it's not about our differences. Like, this discipleship process is about what we have in common, and that's Jesus. So one of the the simplest and most most practical ways that you can get involved, passing that torch, passing the faith into the next generation through this discipleship process, this is something that everyone can do, okay? You ready? Pray. Pray for the next generation. Pray for the people that are younger than you. Find someone, ask them, how can I pray for you? You may be surprised with their response. Everyone can do that. The next practical way that you can do that, that passing on the faith, is through serving. Here's the great thing about serving. There are so many ways that you can serve from organizing events to standing at the door and greeting people as they walk in, all the way to teaching and mentoring and every level in between. If you want to serve, chances are we could find a place for you. That's a dangerous thing to say. I would love to see all of the adults in this room serving in some capacity on a regular basis. In, in our nursery, kids area, or student ministries. And trust me, I was in youth ministry for 10 years. I know that middle schoolers are hard for so many different ways. But there is a place for you because God has gifted us all different. I love, I heard an example um, from our youth ministry a few weeks ago. There's a group of middle school boys. I think there was like 14 of them. And they were, on one night, a little extra. I'll just put it that way. After that night was over, our high school boys small group, the students and sponsors that were in that group, went up to Zane and said, hey, do you mind if we just take like three or four of those middle school boys 
and invite them to our group. Like, that's it. We all have a part to play, but we need to look for those needs. As I close today, I wanted to just encourage us through a verse, a section of verses that we've probably all heard many times before if we've been at Westway for a while. It's one that we talk about quite often in Romans 12. And as I read these, what I want you all to do is just think, like, where do I fit in? What is my role? This is Romans 12, and I'm going to start in verse 3. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame onto their head. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. You see, God has equipped us as a church to pass on what we know and the faith we have to others. And each of us has a role to play. What is your role? If we want to be an intergenerational church, it's going to take all of us working together to accomplish the task. So what is your role? Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I thank you for the the legacy of faith that I've seen in my family that has been passed down from generation to generation to me. But not only that, Father, I'm thankful for the legacy of faith that I received from my church family that was passed down from generation to generation, eventually to me. And Father, I pray that you would just convict me and empower me and give me the boldness 
to do the same thing for my family and my church family. And God, I pray that for everyone here this morning, that you would help us to find our place, to help, help us to find our fit, to find our role, and to do our part to proclaim you to the next generation and the next generation. Father, I pray that you would help us all to do our part to continue that discipleship process to find someone that we can disciple to a closer relationship with you and seek out others that we can learn and grow from as well. Father, I thank you for the example that you set for us and how um, to live life, how to love others. And we just ask you to help us do the same thing. It's in your name I pray. Amen.